The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive from March 11, 2023. In light of the Biden administration's recently released National Cybersecurity Strategy, for today's archive episode, I selected an episode from March 2021. In the episode, Jack Goldsmith sat down with Nicole Perlroth to discuss Perlroth's book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Goldsmith and Perlroth discussed the markets for zero-day vulnerabilities and their role in offensive cyber operations, the United States' slipping grip on the markets, and broader issues of U.S. cybersecurity policy. Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 19th, 2021. I sat down with New York Times cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth about her new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. We discussed the dark world of markets for zero-day vulnerabilities that are so vital in offensive cyber operations, the history of the markets, how they work, who the players are, and why the United States doesn't control it as much as it used to. We also discussed broader issues of U.S. cybersecurity policy, including the recent SolarWinds hack and what it means for the United States' Defend Forward strategy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 19th. Nicole Perlroth on the Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Nicole, you have a statement at the end of your book, which is a pretty serious indictment of the U.S. government, that I think sums up the thesis of the book. You say, quote, the very institutions charged with keeping us safe have opted time and time again to leave us more vulnerable, unquote. Could you explain what that means and just tell us what the book's about? Sure. So what that means is that in order to preserve our espionage operations, our battlefield preparations in the digital realm, it necessitates these days this trade-off that basically entails leaving Americans more vulnerable. When you find a hole in the system and you decide that you can use that hole to spy on our enemies or drop a cyber weapon on their grid one day, there was no problem with that three or four decades ago when we were all using different systems. But these days we all use the same systems. We all use iPhones and Androids and Microsoft Windows, whether you know it or not. And 
Siemens industrial software and Schneider Electric industrial software, and we're all using it for our critical infrastructure. So if you find a hole in those systems and you decide that you're not going to get it fixed so that you might be able to exploit it one day for espionage or surveillance or, again, cyber attack, you are leaving Americans more vulnerable these days. And when I wrote that sentence, I wasn't even just talking about the NSA or Cyber Command or, or some of our other spy agencies. I was really talking about the entire system. You know, Microsoft, they've come a long way, but it is holes in their products, in their technology that just enabled this latest Chinese attack on our systems. It is solar winds that did not catch the fact that the Russians were essentially using its software update as a Trojan horse to get into our federal IT networks. You know, no one is incentivized to seriously look at security. They are incentivized to get their product to market, to cut costs, to keep shipping. And in government, they're incentivized to spy on as many people as possible in the name of protecting Americans. But the problem is we have this moral hazard and this trade-off now where it's effectively left a lot of Americans less safe. So that that is the nut of the book. You know, I really wanted to explore these incentive structures. I wanted to look at this because from my vantage point, I've been covering nonstop cyber attacks at the New York Times. And, you know, it, 10 years ago when I started, I could cover one attack every week or every other week, but they were steadily getting a little bit worse. Now they're all happening simultaneously <laughs> from so many corners of the globe. And they are so costly, not just for American businesses and government, they're costly for hospitals. There was just a, a ransomware attack on a hospital that cost the hospital $10 million and, and American cities and towns. So from my vantage point, things were getting a lot worse. And we had no interest in legislating that critical infrastructure operators up their security. We had no interest in you know, exacting penalties for companies that didn't take their security seriously. So I really just wanted to look at the incentive structures. If we're going to rely on our free market economy to sort of dictate the terms of our security, I wanted to understand what those incentives were and if there was any opportunities to correct course. So I completely agree with what you say about misplaced incentives at the government level and the private level being at the heart of the cybersecurity problem. I want to come back to that later in this discussion. But the thing that for me was most wonderful in this wonderful book was the very rich novel description of the zero day vulnerabilities market, which I've always wondered about and never really understood how it worked. Mm-hmm. And which is at the heart of this problem. Could you tell us, most of our listeners will know what a zero-day vulnerability is, but could you tell us what that is and then maybe tell us how, what these markets are? Yeah. So first of all, thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I focused on the zero-day market because this was the most tangible example of this moral hazard and trade-off I just mentioned. So a zero day is just, it's a flaw in software. Let's make it easy. It's a flaw in your iPhone's iOS software. And if I'm a hacker and I know how to write the code to exploit it, I could potentially use that code and that flaw. So the flaw is called a zero day. The code to exploit it is called a zero day exploit. I could use that zero day exploit to collect your text messages, to track your location, your calendar appointments, turn your video or audio feeds on, 
without you knowing about it. And if I can do that remotely, then that is all you really need as a spy these days. And so there's a high value to that capability, particularly among governments. Governments, you know, use that capability to spy on terrorists, to spy on drug cartels, child predators, you know, you name it. And so I can sell that zero-day exploit. These days, the going rate for it, I'm using prices here from a U.S. broker called Zerodium. They list that capability. They will pay you, the hacker, $2.5 million for that iOS zero-day exploit. Other governments I learned in the course of my book, brokers working for the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia will pay even more. They'll pay you $3 million for that capability. But if you, the hacker, sell that capability to a broker or government, it means that you can't tell Apple about it. Because the minute Apple fixes the underlying flaw, your $3 million investment turns to mud. And so, you know, for governments to spy on iPhones these days, and, you know, this is a crucial part of the war on terror, uh, for them to do that, it necessitates leaving that hole open, leaving that zero day unfixed, not telling Apple about it. Because the minute Apple finds out about it, they patch it. They roll that patch into a software update. They roll it out to your phone and you get one of those annoying prompts telling you to update your software again and everything is is fixed. So I really wanted to focus just on that because, like I said, three decades ago, we were all using different technology and that technology wasn't so critical and baked into our lives. You know, China, for the most part, was using Huawei. The United States, for the most part, with a few exceptions, was not using Huawei so if we found a zero day in Huawei, uh, we could use it to not only spy on China and Chinese businesses and Chinese officials, but any country that felt more comfortable using Chinese software than American software, like North Korea or Iran or Sudan or Syria. But these days, the calculus is different because we are all using the same technology. You know, Whether you know it or not, you are using Microsoft Windows if not on your personal computer, then you're using it in your power grid or your water treatment facility or uh, your wastewater treatment plan or the pipeline. You know, all of these systems are now digitized. It's like Mark Andreessen said, software is eating the world. So the stakes for these decisions about whether to keep or turn over a zero-day exploit were getting higher the more that we digitized our lives and our critical infrastructure. And then there was this other development happening, which is that Every one of America's chief adversaries, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, we're all seeing that you know, they might not be able to meet the United States on the battlefield necessarily or match us for dollars for our kinetic military warfare preparations and programs, but they had this asymmetric advantage in cyber. They could do a lot of harm. Uh, to American businesses, to you know, our elections, to our critical infrastructure with code. So they've been they've all been investing in these programs, and we continue to see these nation state attacks, but also these cyber criminals use cyber to do serious, costly harm to the United States. So this theoretical of if I keep a zero day for myself and leave Americans more vulnerable, could someone eventually discover that and use it back against the United States? Maybe, but it's more critical for my intelligence or counterintelligence operation. That was more of a theoretical debate over a decade ago. But these days, we have so many adversaries lined up at our gates trying to get in and knocking on our doors and doing real 
costly damage that I think it's no longer a theoretical. These are real decisions to keep Americans safe or less safe these days. So I want to talk about the vulnerabilities equities process in a moment, but just give us more detail about how these markets work and how they developed. They started out with really amazing origins longer ago than I would have thought. And for a while, it seems like the United States kind of controlled and dominated the market. And part of the story you tell is how that's no longer true. Yeah. So, you know, this all started when hackers started finding problems in software. And in those days, it was, you know, in the 90s, it was Hewlett Packard, Oracle, Sun Microsystems, Microsoft. Uh, They would find holes in their systems. And Back then, there wasn't a 1-800 number to call up and say, I just found a huge hole in your your Windows software and I can use it to get into NASA's networks. You know, there was no way to really contact the company. And when someone did get an engineer on the line at the company, oftentimes they would say, why are you poking around our software? Stop it. Or, you know, a hacker might get a call from a general counsel saying, you know, we'll sue you if you continue to poke around our software but mostly the hackers were just ignored. And so they they started dumping these capabilities online on these hacker forums like BugTrack, more as a way of getting street cred or just trading information among one another, more as a hobby. But, you know, as the 90s progressed um, with the, the U.S. embassy bombings and then later 9-11, the U.S. government saw a huge opportunity here to essentially leverage these holes in software to spy on our adversaries. And so these contractors popped up around the Beltway who originally were just finding these flaws themselves, developing zero-day exploits, baking them into click-and-shoot tools, espionage tools for the U.S. government. Uh, most of their business was done for the Pentagon They told me about 80% when I tracked down one of the original zero-day developers and brokers. And then the rest were going to law enforcement agencies like the FBI uh, that saw an ability to spy on terrorists, child predators, criminals, that kind of thing. Um, So they started reaching out to these hackers and saying, hey, that flaw you just dumped on bug track, would would you be interested in maybe tweaking it a little bit and selling it to us for something like $90,000? And so at the same time that these hackers were basically getting beat over the head by general counsels at at Sun Microsystems, et cetera, they were getting outreach from these brokers on behalf of U.S. government agencies saying, hey, that thing you just published online, we'll give you $90,000 if you can develop something unique for us. So it's just this really interesting dichotomy between how hackers were seen as a value to government agencies and as the enemy from some of these companies. And, you know, back then, Microsoft had really, it was the most interesting case study. Microsoft had really been caught flat-footed on the internet. Netscape was just dominating the market. And so Microsoft was just rushing to catch up and rolling out these web servers and software that was just riddled with holes because back then their their primary interest was just speed, getting this to market as quickly as possible. And all of that in, entailed basically leaving wide gaps in their systems that hackers were exploiting all the time. And, you know, governments didn't have to pay that much for a hole in Microsoft software because it was so shoddy in those days. But 
you know, after a couple high profile attacks uh, using Microsoft systems, these were like computer worms that some of you may or may not remember, like NIMDA and the I love you virus, Microsoft st- started getting calls from government agencies saying, hey, you better fix your security problem. Otherwise, we'll we'll do our business elsewhere. And so around 2002, Microsoft and Bill Gates released this, this memo called the Open Trustworthy Computing Memo, where he basically said, we understand that security will be critical as the internet grows and expands into our daily lives. And so we will take security more seriously. And they did make a real commitment to reorganize Microsoft's entire architecture and, and organization around security. And when they did that, it got a lot harder to hack into Microsoft systems to find zero days and develop exploits for Windows software, for instance. And so the cost of these holes and the code to exploit them for government kept going up and up. But a game changer was really Stuxnet. You know, once the Stuxnet computer worm was discovered in 2010, when it, once it, it fled the coop and worked its way around the world, it was picked up by our adversaries and by governments all over the globe who saw what could be done with a zero-day exploit, not just for espionage, but for destruction. You know, Stuxnet was really a counterproliferation effort. It was designed so carefully. It was clear there were lawyers sitting over their shoulders, making sure that it only functioned on the exact configuration of centrifuges at Iran's nuclear facility to take out the centrifuges. But what our adversaries weren't admiring were the careful components of the code. They were admiring the fact that the US and Israel had just used code to essentially decimate critical infrastructure in another country's over another country's borders. And since then, we have seen, you know, more than a hundred governments now start stockpiling their own zero-day exploits, develop their own cyber weapons, some for a rainy day or battlefield preparations, but mostly for espionage. And in a lot of cases, they are turning those capabilities on their own people, like we see over and over again in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and even places like Mexico. So this is just, all of this is happening in a completely unregulated market. And you only really find out how the tools got used after the fact, after they've been burned, after the cyber attacks happened, or after uh, someone discovers that they're now stuck in solitary confinement because there was spyware on their phone for the last year tracking all of their communications. So I, I still don't really understand how these markets work. If I'm a as a lawyer, I have a whole bunch of questions. For example, yes, <laughs> as you should. Uh, no, I don't mean those kind of questions. I just want to know how the contracts work. So, if Saudi Arabia wants to go in the market for some kind of, say, Microsoft zero day vulnerability, and because they have some end in mind that they want to accomplish, where do they go? How do they know that the vulnerability that they're buying is indeed a zero day and hasn't been discovered by someone else? How do they make the payment? Um, who are the people selling? Where does the marketplace take place? How does it work? So I should start by saying this is an, an incredibly inefficient market because ultimately what they're dealing with is invisible code, code that no one wants to get out. And so 
it's just created a, a lot of market inefficiencies and all of this operates in a dark box, which is why it was really hard to report on for this book. But the way it works is a hacker finds a zero day and develops a zero day exploit. He has several options. He can go to Apple or Microsoft or the manufacturer and say, you have a big problem here and they'll fix it. And he might get a bounty in return for his efforts, which is, has happened over the last year, a couple of years as these companies start started up their own bug bounty programs. But he or she can make a lot more money by selling it to a broker. So there are used to be brokers all over the world that did not advertise themselves because their customers, namely governments, didn't want any of this advertised. But these days, you have brokers like Zerodium, okay, around D.C., which lists its prices for these tools on its website. And like I said, they they will now offer $2.5 million for your iOS zero-day exploit that can get a government into an iPhone remotely without that target so much as clicking on their phone. If it's an Android exploit these days, it's $3 million. So if I'm a hacker, I find, I find this capability. I can sell it to Zerodium for $2.5 or $3 million. That then gets sold to government agencies. Now, as far as exclusivity and, and all of that, it used to be that hackers could just sell these to as many different entities as they wanted. But yes, questions came up around exclusivity. And so these days, the market has matured to the point where in a lot of cases, customers do demand exclusivity. They do demand that you know they'll pay $50,000 more, $100,000 more if the hacker signs uh, an exclusivity clause that says they won't sell that code to another government agency or another government or another broker. But again, this is invisible code. There's no guarantees here. You never really know whether that hacker you just bought that capability from in Romania isn't turning around and selling it to Russia or Belarus or whoever, unless you catch that in the wild. So one of the zero-day exploit brokers I spoke with for the book, his name's Adriel Desotels. He sort of developed a lot of these innovations around exclusivity clauses with his lawyers and started forcing you know, hackers to make a decision about whether they would earn more for exclusivity. But as global demand increased for these tools, the hackers started saying, I don't want to give you exclusivity anymore. I have too many options. And so US government agencies would come back and say, okay, fine, then just give us exclusivity for three months or six months, and we'll pay for that. And then you can sell it to whoever you want. And that's sort of where the market has gone. Now, hackers have so many different options these days that no one really wants to guarantee exclusivity, even if it means a premium on pricing uh, for more than three months or six months. And then once they demonstrate that code to the broker, the broker will take it to the government agency or to the defense contractors like Raytheon, et cetera, show them you know, how the exploit works. And then these defense contractors will often bake that into a click and shoot off the shelf tool for government agencies. They'll sell them that tool, but they never know how it gets used. You know, once, once they throw it over the fence, they have no idea, you know, who will be the target of that tool. And so that's, that's essentially it. So that's great. Uh, one more question about how the market works and then I'll move on to something else. So 
I don't really understand how these exclusivity clauses work because it's not like in the usual case that if the person selling the vulnerability doesn't really give exclusivity, that there's going to be a breach of contract case brought in a court somewhere. And I imagine that it's hard to verify when someone is selling a vulnerability. I imagine it's hard to verify that they did, in fact, give the three month exclusivity. So how, how does the system operate? Is, is it really contract or is it more by reputation that the person who doesn't stand by their word won't be able to sell a vulnerability the next in the next round? Yeah, so these are all excellent questions, and these are the questions I hope to answer in the book. And even talking to the brokers who wrote these exclusivity arrangements into contracts, I walked away completely unsatisfied. But what they said was that they they wrote up these exclusivity clauses, and hackers would agree to them in exchange for a premium on whatever payment they had agreed to. And they said, you know, this broker I spoke with, uh, his name was Adriel Desotels. He he started a company called Netregard, which does penetration testing. And then he realized that he could basically fund his startup, not through venture capital money, but through brokering and developing zero-day exploits and selling them to defense contractors and government agencies. And so I said, what will you do to guarantee that these hackers you're buying these at zero day exploits from in Romania, you know, from Russia, uh, from Eastern Europe? How do you guarantee that they're not just going to turn around and sell this to one of our adversaries? And he said that he would tell these hackers, listen, if you sell this to someone else, my customers will find out about it and they will hunt you down. <laughs> That was not a direct quote, but that was what that was essentially what the answer was. It was just the threat of, listen, I sell primarily to U.S. governments, uh, U.S. government agencies and brokers, and you don't want to be in a position where you are caught selling the same tool to another country because we will find out about it in some way, shape, or form. And I had all sorts of questions about that that never got answered. But yes, it does come down to reputation. I've never heard of a breach of contract suit for someone who who sold a zero-day exploit to another government or another broker because again these are invisible tools. You know, these are tools that necessitate that no one talks about them, that they just use them in stealth. So it's very hard to find out if someone just breached your exclusivity clause, but it it does end up relying a lot on people's reputation. If they have a reputation, for sharing tools with different brokers or different governments, then the U.S. government and its brokers and defense contractors might hear about it and not do business with them anymore. There was a case of the Gruck, who you probably know from Twitter. He's a South African exploit broker who lives in Thailand, and he spoke to Forbes magazine more than a decade ago about the zero-day exploit business. And he claimed later that he was speaking off the record, but he also posed uh, for a photo next to a giant duffel bag of cash as he was talking about this business. And what I learned was that after that article published, he was visited by the Thai police, his zero-day exploit business profits plunged by half. No one wanted to do business with anyone that talked about this market publicly. And that made it even harder for me to go out and research this book. 
but you know, at the end of the day, this a lot of this comes down to reputation, and and you could find your reputation harmed by talking to anyone or breaching these contracts if anyone found out about it, which is really difficult to find out. So let's talk about the trade offs that the United States faces when it comes into possession of uh, an important zero day vulnerability, either from purchasing it in the market or from discovering it on its own or however. So the basic decision that the United States faces is, and this is where we started off this conversation, do we disclose the existence of this vulnerability, say it's a Microsoft vulnerability, thereby allowing Microsoft to patch it quickly and thereby securing, you know, basically all the computers and computer systems that were exposed to that vulnerability, including, you know, many Americans, or do we not disclose it and rather hoard it instead so that we can use it for offensive espionage operations or uh, some kind of cyber exploitation in anticipation of a cyber attack. That basic trade-off is at the kind of foundation of your book. There's something called the vulnerabilities equities process that I think got going at least formally at the national security agency level, or at least the White House level, I think in the Obama administration. And my sense was that, just from reading your stories and others, was that there was still a very, despite that process, which is supposed to consider all these equities and kind of come to some kind of fully informed understanding about what the trade-offs are and how they should be resolved. My understanding is that process still puts a heavy thumb in favor of hoarding, especially the important vulnerabilities, the ones that might be most important for defense, hoarding those because they're the most valuable. So, and you did a lot of, you talked a lot about this process in the book and where, in the arc of it. Can you just tell us how, what, where it is today and how it's evolved? Yeah. So it started informally at the NSA. They had a process for this that they eventually called NOBUS, which stands for nobody but us. If they found a zero day in software that was widely used by Americans, that would bias them in favor of disclosing that zero day to the software manufacturer and getting it fixed. If they found a zero day, even in Microsoft Windows, some of the widely most widely used software on the market, that took years or even months in the NSA's case for them to develop the code to exploit, to reliably exploit, they might still keep it because it is critical for them to be able to spy on people uh, who use Microsoft Windows. And if they found that it was really difficult to exploit that system, that it took them months or years and millions of dollars to exploit in a giant buzz farm of computers to test the code, then they might still hold on to it. So that's sort of how the decision-making went at the NSA in the early days. And as far as I knew, I never really heard about the NSA turning zero days over to companies in those in those early days throughout the 90s and, and early 2000s. But under George Bush, actually, they started the vulnerability equities process. This was the first time a government of any kind had set up a process to debate the merits of keeping a zero day in government stockpiles or turning it over to software manufacturers to get fixed. And the guy that originally headed this process for the White House was Howard Schmidt, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but is a huge mensch of a man and was really helpful actually in thinking through this book and this topic for me early on. And he even said, this is the most difficult decision-making process I have ever been a part of. It is not a science. It is an art. But the concept was, let's have 
stakeholders from multiple government agencies sit around a table. And when we find a serious zero day in systems, let's have a conversation about whether to turn it over to the software manufacturer. Let's not just by default hold on to this thing. And let's not rely on the the good hearts of the great people working at NSA to make these decisions. So what they came up with was a set of criteria. And the criteria was this. It was how widely used is this software? If it's widely used by Americans, that will bias us in favor of turning this over. The second question was, you know, if discovered by our adversaries, how destructive would this be for Americans and American businesses? And if it would be destructive, then that would bias us in favor of turning it over. And then the third was, and oh, if this is discovered that we were hoarding this zero day, how damaging would this be to the relationship between U.S. government and the private sector, the Microsofts and Googles of the world? And if it would be hugely destructive to that relationship, that would also bias them in favor of turning it over. So those were sort of the main criteria that they reckoned with in these discussions. Under Obama, the process was taken over by Michael Daniel, and I went and met with him while he was still in office to sit down and talk about this. And you could just tell that he was exhausted by this process and that it really was painful. Um, and he even said, and I put it in the book, he said, sometimes there's blood left on the table. These these debates can get very emotional. People have really strong feelings about this. And when I met with him after he left office, when Trump Trump had come into office, he told me he had regrets about some of the decisions that were made. And I suspect that the biggest regret he might have had uh, was the fact that when the NSA was hacked in 2016 and 2017 by the shadow brokers, who, by the way, we still have no idea who the shadow brokers are. If we do know, we haven't revealed it. But when the NSA was hacked by the shadow brokers, the shadow brokers eventually started dribbling out the NSA's most coveted zero-day exploits and hacking tools. And in 2017, they dumped one NSA exploit that they called Eternal Blue. And if you just look at Eternal Blue and what happened after it was dumped online, then you know that these conversations that we were having under the vulnerability equities process did not apply to this zero-day exploit. So this was an exploit that utilized Microsoft Windows software, so the most widely used software on the market. Uh, later, after it was it was dumped online, North Korea picked it up, and then Russia picked it up for the WannaCry NotPetya attacks, which NotPetya ended up being the most costly cyber attack we've seen in history. It cost $400 million to FedEx. It cost about that sum to Pfizer and to Merck. Merck's uh, vaccine production lines were paralyzed in that attack. It actually had to tap into the CDC's emergency stockpile of Gardasil vaccines that year. It affected the radiation monitoring systems at Chernobyl. Fortunately, it didn't hit any other nuclear plant as far as we know, but it caused real critical damage to critical systems. So when you look at it through that lens, you know it was hugely destructive in the hands of our adversary. And finally, when I dug in further, I found out that not only had we held on to the underlying Microsoft Zero Day that became Eternal Blue, we'd we'd held on to it for more than five years. 
And when I interviewed people at the NSA, they told me that when they used this tool, they likened it to fishing with dynamite. They knew that in the hands of anyone else, this could be a, a hugely destructive weapon. And instead of you know, basically relying on all the criteria we said we were relying on for these VEP discussions, that code they told me, that zero-day exploit, was getting some of the best counterintelligence that the NSA was could get. So they told me they never actually seriously considered putting it up for discussion. So I assume it might have made its way through the VEP process, but I think that they probably made some very strenuous and vocal arguments that said, this is getting some of the best counterintelligence we get. We cannot possibly turn this over. And so they kept it for five years. So when you look at the VEP process through the prism of Eternal Blue, you see that it basically failed at every level in favor of counterintelligence. And so that's when you start to see that these discussions are great. You know, no one is sitting around a table in Iran talking about whether to keep or turn over a zero day in Microsoft Windows software. So it's good that we're having the, these discussions, but I think there's legitimate questions about the fact that they are overbiased in favor of, of offense. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so that story as told in your book. I knew pieces of it, but you brought it together so nicely. And I just want to underscore how damning this is. You're talking about the National Security Agency, which is the agency in the government that's supposed to keep our computer systems secure. This exploit was stolen or some, somehow gained from inside the bowels of the NSA. It reveals, as you just said, that the vulnerabilities equities process, those criteria sound great, but if it doesn't stop, if it, if this type of exploit doesn't require a patch. If we're going to hoard this type of exploit, then it's very hard to see that the three criteria you mentioned make any sense. And to me, my conclusion is that the vulnerabilities equities process is just theater and that there's still, as you say, or at least as of the writing of the book, there's still, as you say, a large thumb on the scale of hoarding over disclosing and patching. Yes. You know, I covered the shadow broker leaks for the New York Times on the front page. I covered the fallout on the front page of the New York Times. But I don't think it landed with the American public the way that the Snowden leaks landed with the American public. And to me, the shadow brokers leaks were far worse. You know, Snowden was hugely damaging to the Amer American intelligence apparatus from a PR perspective. 
you know, I would say that probably the most damning thing he revealed was the hack of Angela Merkel's cell phone. So from a PR perspective, it was not great. What the shadow brokers did was they dumped the actual bullets. <laughs> they they dumped some of our most coveted hacking tools online. They allowed them to get picked up by our adversaries and used back against American businesses. And no one was talking about the fact that these attacks that came back to hit us had been facilitated by these decisions inside the National Security Agency. And when I went and sat down with Mike Rogers, former NSA director, I asked him, do you lose sleep at night over what happened with the shadow brokers and the subsequent attacks? And he said, I sleep just fine. And he said, you know, if someone builds a Toyota pickup truck and someone comes along and bolts a bomb onto it and drives it through a crowd of people, is that Toyota's fault? And that analogy just told me everything I needed to know, which was the NSA didn't feel like it bore any responsibility for hoarding those tools, having them hacked, having them picked up by North Korea, Russia, and then cyber criminals and used on all kinds of ransomware attacks on American towns and cities. But I do think that it bears some responsibility to hold on to that code for more than five years knowing full well that you were fishing with dynamite and in the hands of an adversary, it could be hugely damaging. There's no getting around that. That is that is a decision you made and we do bear some responsibility. And, you know, as far as the VEP process is concerned, again, credit to the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia and Canada, countries that do entertain these discussions, but how helpful are they? When you look at Eternal Blue and see that, you know, every criteria that they claim to take into consideration was ignored in favor of just getting more intelligence. And, you know, I will say, to be fair, when I did go back and talk to, you know, TAO hackers who use that tool, they did say, and and here's where it's hard, you know, and I want to be fair. There are things that they can't talk about, right? And But what they could say was, you, do, you don't understand, Nicole. The counterintelligence we were netting with that exploit would blow your mind. You would never want us to turn over that zero day to Microsoft if you knew what we were getting. So I don't know what we were getting, but clearly, you know, it was enough for us to ignore all of these other criteria that we claim to care about. Yeah, that's what you just mentioned is a problem in this whole area. Invariably, we get a very skewed sense of reality about what's really going on in every one of these areas related to cybersecurity based on what the government chooses to disclose and what you're able to discover through other means. But on the other hand, I've seen people in the government time and time again saying, if you only knew what was happening Right. While we're doing it. And then it turned out in hindsight not to quite be that way. So I don't I don't know how to assess this. I think it was Mike Hayden, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, who said after the Shadow Brokers episode, and then I think the CIA lost it some of its offensive tools. In one of those episodes, he or someone at his level said, if we can't keep these secret, there's a good question whether we should be hoarding them at all. And I think that's a I think that's a fair question. But let me ask you, you can comment on that, but let me ask you also one more point about this. Why is it that there wasn't more of an outcry over this compared to Snowden? Is because, in some sense, this was materially, you know, Eternal Blue and the Shadow Brokers leak was materially much more damaging than 
what Snowden revealed, which which obviously was damaging on many levels. Is it because Snowden was revealing spying, so-called spying or surveillance on the homeland? And this is not really about spying, but about just material loss. I just, it's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it, that there was such a reaction? Well, you know, I will say that I blame myself because I think, I think the issue is just that what the shadow brokers leaked was code. It was more technical. There wasn't a face behind it. You know, they literally named themselves the shadow brokers. We didn't have the face of Edward Snowden to hang on to in our minds. And as soon as someone sees the word zero day exploit, I think in a lot of cases, their eyes roll to the back of their heads and they stop paying attention. And that was really the challenge in deciding to write this book. But it was also why I wanted to write it. Because to me, what happened was so much worse than Snowden, like I said, and tied into everything else we were seeing on a daily basis with these nation state hackers increasing their levels of sophistication. You know, that was just an event when the shadow brokers leaked that code and it was so quickly picked up by North Korea and Russia. It just showed you in such a tight amount of time how the capabilities gap had closed to a certain degree. And we had watched that happening slowly and over the past several years. But but to see that code dropped off one month and then picked up by North Korea the next and Russia the month after that and used for these hugely destructive attacks on American companies and towns and schools and medical records um, was just so clear to me. But clearly I wasn't doing a good enough job communicating this to the American public in the pages of the New York Times. And I knew that part of the problem was that this was using terms like zero-day exploits, which are just intimidating to the lay audience. So I knew to really explain this to people, it took it would take a narrative. And so that's why I wrote the book the way I did, sort of as a spy novel, um, nonfiction narrative to try and catch people and shake them <laughs> and say, hey... This is what's been happening for the last three decades, but the trade-off is you. You know, the trade-off is your security, your vulnerability, and you might not have have been hit with a cyber attack yet that feels very visceral. You might have just had your personal data stolen or your credit card information taken and your bank paid you back, but these attacks are getting more and more visceral. You know, I just covered this attack at a hospital in Vermont where people couldn't get their chemo infusions because the record of who was owed what in terms of these complicated chemotherapy protocols had all been wiped out in a ransomware attack that we think might have been revenge for a cyber command takedown of a cyber criminal network called TrickBot. So all of these things are starting to touch Americans in a much more visceral way. And I wanted to back up and say, hey, here, here is what the threat landscape looks like. Here is where we have enabled it in some ways. And also to, to kind of remove these conversations from the InfoSec Twitter community and these classified government corridors, because I think we haven't solved for this, right? And these are really hard questions. There's no vaccine or no sil- silver bullet for cyber. And I think it's time we open up these conversations to everyone and to people in different fields, because the security community isn't solving for it and government isn't solving for it. So, you know, it's important to me that everyone understands what these trade-offs are and to have some of these conversations about really, really hard decisions. Yeah, the book does a great job of, of sort of laying that out and explaining it in very accessible terms. Another thing you've written about a lot that I don't think has quite gotten the attention it deserves, both in the New York Times and in the book, 
is really about the extent to which the United States is doing the very things that we're complaining about here, namely that we are in adversary systems all the way to the ground, that we have, you know, software soft software lodged in their systems, electrical grids and intelligence systems and all sorts of elements of their digital space, both for espionage and for, you know, possibly a mutually sure destruction idea. And I'm always amazed, even though you report it, I mean, you're, it's in your stories and you've reported about, I forget what it's called, the, the Iranian operation where we... Nitro Zeus. Nitrous Zeus, is that what it was? I think yeah. so, yeah. so. You've reported this, but it seems like it's neither absorbed by our government or the public that we are you know, probably the most aggressive when it comes to cyber exploitation, to living in adversary networks. We're the only nation I know of that kind of acknowledges this. This is what the Defend Forward strategy is essentially, at least in part, about. Tell us about that. Why isn't that element of this problem more known because it seems to me that this is not just a point about hypocrisy, but we, we can't expect, we can't really expect our adversaries not to live in our systems when we're living in their systems. And it's clear that we're living in their systems, probably more thoroughly than they're living in our systems. What do you make of this? Well, I'll start with Huawei. You know, when we think about Huawei these days, we think about the U.S. accusations that Huawei is a PLA backdoor. Uh, the pressure campaign to get our allies not to use Huawei. But what I think about is a story that David Sanger and I wrote several years ago now about how the NSA went hunting for PLA backdoors in Huawei systems, never found them according to the leaks we were given. But once they were in, said, wait a minute, we're in Huawei. We have access to their source code. We can use this as a supply chain attack to spy on Chinese officials and diplomats in North Korea and Iran. And so we're going to stay a while. And we've been doing that in most every software that comes on the market. And we know that in part thanks to the Snowden leaks, but we also know it just from leaks from officials. And sometimes they want it to be known that they are in these systems for, as you say, mutually assured destruction. When David Sanger and I reported a few years ago that Cyber Command had essentially been unleashed from getting presidential approval for every operation to go out on its own, and that they had used these new authorities to embed themselves in the Russian power grid, and that they were actually doing it in a pretty loud way to make it known that they were in there. And part of this was retaliation for Russia's incursions of our grid and maybe some retaliation for their interference in 2016. We don't know. You know, that did not land with people. Actually, it was only when Trump came out and called that story on Twitter a virtual act of treason that I started getting phone calls from people saying, wait a minute, president just accused you of treason. And A.G. Sulzberger, our publisher, went and wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal about the fact that the president had used the T word. And, you know, I was hearing about it and I was actually grateful to the president for calling us traitors and using the treason word for that story, because at least it drew people's eyes to that story, which was the U.S. is loudly hacking the Russian grid and making a show of it, but they are also enshrining power grids as a legitimate target for cyber attacks and mutually assured destruction. What do we make of this? Where does this end? 
at what point do we say, wait a minute, we have just weaponized the world's critical infrastructure because we're waiting for some geopolitical trigger and response here? Is that, are we okay with this? So, you know, that's what I make of that. I think story to story, people sort of read it and then they go back and see what the latest Twitter outrage is that day and they move on. But I was happy that we could linger on that story for a little bit longer, thanks to the president. But, you know, what I make of this is it's very hard these days for the United States to respond to an attack like solar winds because we have been doing the exact same thing for decades very successfully. What Russia just did using solar winds as a Trojan horse to get into our federal IT networks, that is precisely the thing that the NSA did when we hacked into Huawei and used it as a Trojan horse to spy on our adversaries. So we don't really want to call the solar winds attack an act of war. I think a lot of intelligence officials flinched when Dick Durbin called it an act of war uh, because they knew that we've been doing the exact same thing. We're doing it right this minute. We're just better at it. And so, you know, you don't hear about it as much, but we are doing it and we have been doing it for a very long time. And so it really hamstrings us when it comes to how to respond. So the thing I worry about with this kind of developing idea of everyone having living in the adversary's digital space with the possibility of weaponizing it in an instance and that kind of therefore deterring everyone from doing anything really bad, the mutually sure destruction idea is, you know, that worked theoretically in the nuclear context where it was a bilateral relationship and where it was pretty clear, although there was still the possibility of a mistake, but it was pretty clear what would count as a breach and trigger retaliation. But when you have lots of countries living in lots of other countries' uh, systems, and when clarity on the identity of the person doing the act is unclear in the short term, and then all sorts of things might go wrong with the system that might or might not be attributable to a foreign state, it seems to me that mutually assured destruction in that context is really, really dangerous because it might set off a mutual retaliation by accident. Yes, I totally agree with you. And, you know, in nuclear, there's a high barrier to entry. You have to have the fissile material. In cyber, you just need a laptop and the skills. And if you don't have the skills, you can buy them off this market. So there's a very low barrier to entry. Also in cyber, when we attack another country's systems, they can discover that attack, they can find the code, they can unravel that code, and they can retrofit it for their own purposes. And we actually just saw China do this. We learned after the shadow brokers dump and after the, the North Koreans and the Russians had picked it up for these loud, destructive attacks, we actually learned that. At some point before the shadow brokers dumped these tools online, China had picked up these attacks using uh, eternal exploits on its systems and had picked it up and retrofitted it and used it in attacks on some of our allies in Asia quietly. And we didn't know about it until years later. So, you know, you might have these capabilities and you could burrow yourself in another nation's grid. But there's nothing stopping the target of those attacks from discovering that code, unraveling it, and using it back on us. So 
in in cyber in particular, the enemy is a very good teacher. And we see this over and over and over again, but we kind of fail to learn these lessons. And so, you know, mutually assured destruction is great when it takes billions of dollars to develop a nuclear weapon. It's not so great when, you know, you can buy these same capabilities for $100,000 off the market. So you had a story recently about how the U.S. government, the Biden administration, is thinking about yet again rethinking how we're going to do defense in light of solar winds and the microphone exchange episode. I wonder what those two recent massive and massively consequential hacks mean for the defend forward and persistent engagement strategies that the DOD and the Cyber Command have been really beating their chests about, about very public and forward-leaning, about basically, as I understand it, we're going to live in adversary networks, we're going to be able to find and stop the uh, attacks or at least offensive operations before they begin, and this will both sort of stop the attacks before they start and, I guess, in some way have a deterrent effect. Should we see the solar winds and Microsoft Exchange episodes and then the st- your story about this new idea of, not really a new idea, but this idea of working more closely with private cyber firms, does this constitute a failure of Defend Forward or is, was that about something else? Yes, it constitutes a failure. You know, I, re- I finished this book right before solar winds was discovered, but my takeaway from the book was that America's biggest vulnerability these days was its own hubris, the hubris of American exceptionalism, this idea that by hacking into our adversaries' networks, we could keep Americans safe. It was so clear to me from where I sat covering these attacks every single day that that strategy had failed. And I'm not saying let's stop defending forward, let's stop offense, let's slow down on offense. But what had become very clear to me was that offense alone is not going to get us where we need to be. We do live in the glassiest of glass houses. We are the most targeted nation state on earth by cyber criminals and nation state hackers. And we are arguably the most vulnerable because we're so much more digitized than countries like North Korea or Ukraine. You know, our adversaries have found a very big sweet spot. Uh, in cyber. They can target American businesses. They don't have to come at the government directly. And ostensibly, Defend Forward, the idea was if we hack into our adversary systems, then we can get this early warning system of what they have planned before they come for us. But, you know, the book sort of ends there. But but then SolarWinds happened. And SolarWinds made very clear that the government just didn't catch this. This early warning system idea failed us. Government didn't catch SolarWinds. FireEye did, a private company, only after itself was hacked by these Russian hackers and then in unwinding the attack, discovered they'd come in through SolarWinds, an American company. And where did they stage their attacks from? They staged them from servers in New Jersey uh, where the NSA can't look. And then once again, we've seen this Chinese attack where Once again, they staged the attack from inside the United States where the NSA can't look. So the good news is that those attacks have really, once again, raised the hard question around defense. And we are not comfortable, particularly after Snowden doing what Israel does, where in Israel, they invite the government 
to monitor and block attacks on private networks. That is the last thing that a company like Google or Microsoft want to see happen is have the NSA inside their networks, even if it's just to block or defend attacks, because most of their customers these days are foreign. You know, Apple has more market share now, I think, in China than it does in the United States. So, you know, the last thing they want is the optics of the NSA sitting inside their systems. We we had those discussions after Snowden, and there's very little appetite for it in the private sector. And there, I think, is even very little appetite for it in Congress. So what do we do? Well, we have to work with what we have, which is the market. So, you know, the idea here is, and, we, and like you said, we've been talking about this for years is a better threat sharing arrangement, a voluntary threat sharing arrangement between the private sector, between companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and FireEye and CrowdStrike and intelligence agencies. But you know, that all makes sense on its face. It's it's more difficult in the details. You know, you set up a clearinghouse, where would it be? Would it be at NSA? Probably not, because once again, you know, businesses fear the optics of that threat sharing arrangement. Uh, with their foreign governments and foreign customers. And so probably it would sit at CISA, the Department of Homeland Security. But, you know, it's going to be very difficult to hash out in in the details. That's why it hasn't happened yet, is we always find ourselves stumbling over, you know, how do we have liability protections for companies for sharing vulnerabilities so they can't be the subject of class action lawsuits? How do we get around this optics problem that we're setting up this real-time threat sharing program with with the United States government, even if we're just talking about malware strains. So there's a communications piece here that has to be overcome and a public perception piece. And then there's the sort of the fine grain details of where would this sit, who would have access, what kinds of data would we be sharing, how do we make sure it's anonymized. And I think it's a good idea. I think it's necessary. I think it's long overdue. And I also think, yes, we need data breach notification laws. The government should know when a company has been breached because more often than not, it's one of many in a similar industry that is facing these threats. And the earlier we can know about the first attack, then the sooner we'll know about these broader campaigns and we might be able to defend these threats against other companies. But we need so much more than that, too. You know, we need to figure out how to incentivize companies to test their code and lock their code up and use multi-factor authentication and have regular patching schedules and have advanced intrusion detection systems. And we need to figure out how to pay for those systems and whether we need to give tax credits to companies that subject themselves to real penetration tests. And I think we need to start talking about penalties. You know, should SolarWinds be considered negligent because the password to their software update mechanism the very tool that was used as a Trojan horse in this crazy large long time attack was SolarWinds one two three. You know, should we should we have penalties for companies that have shoddy security? Because right now the incentive is just keep shipping, move fast and break things, get your product to market, and until that changes, we're just going to continue to see more vulnerabilities, more attacks, more sophisticated attacks. So I'm skeptical. This is my last question. I'm skeptical that we're going to do that. Everything you just described there, all of the sensible things you suggest at the end of your book about how to deal with this problem, it's not just the last few years. If you go back and read 1990s National Academy of Sciences reports on cybersecurity, all of these 
incentive problems were known and discussed and have been on the table for decades now. And but we haven't really made much progress on it. We've continued to take the short-term games on offense in terms of military and on innovation and profit on the private side. And really cybersecurity, it's taken much more seriously now than it used to be, but it's still not the most important thing. And it's very costly to suggest to do all those things. So my last question is, where does this all end? The, the title of your book is, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. It seems like I've been looking at this problem for almost a quarter of a century, and it seems to just invariably be getting worse and worse for the United States. I don't know if that's true because we don't know, as we said earlier, what's happening on the gain side, and I assume there are enormous but it just seems to be getting worse and worse for us on the on the defense side and on the loss side. So is there a natural stopping point? How does this end? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, unfortunately, it will likely end with a calamitous cyber-induced cyber attack that when people ask me how what that looks like, I just say, look at Texas the other week. You know, something that would take out the grid, that could contaminate our water, that could then hold up hospitals, ransomware, so they have to turn away patients. Every piece of that we have seen. We saw Russia take out the power in Ukraine. We saw a hacker the other week try to get into a water treatment facility or successfully get into a water treatment facility in Florida and up the level of lie in the water. And we see hospitals held ransomware with attacks every day. And I don't think it's that far off that a nation state or anyone really would try to pull off some kind of coordinated attack that plays on all three of those things or potentially causes an explosion. And unfortunately, I don't think that the American public and legislators and the market is going to do anything differently until we have that glaring, visceral attack. But my hope is, and the reason I wrote the book, is that I could show people that where we already are is not just on the cusp of that attack. Um, you know, It just seems like we might just be waiting for some geopolitical hot point for that to happen. Uh, and it might not happen until we until we have that. But my point in in writing the book is to show people, hey, where we already are is horrible. <laughs> Our intellectual property has been carted off by China. Our hospitals are getting held ransomware. Our schools were getting held ransomware in the middle of a pandemic, shutting down virtual learning. Universities are getting held hostage with ransomware. Baltimore was held hostage with ransomware several times. You know, the nuclear plants were infiltrated by Russia. We know they got into Wolf Creek nuclear plant. And we know that they've made inroads into our power grid for years. So we need to wake up to where we already are. But, you know, we're really bad as a country. And this became very glaring during the pandemic in taking these learnings and looking around and seeing what's coming and preparing for it in advance. We're just not set up for it. We're, we're so much more focused on the short term, on whatever the daily or weekly outrage is and the news cycle. We're really bad as a country at planning and preparing for these things that you know, don't feel imminent, even if they are increasingly feeling more imminent. So, you know, my, my skeptical side says it's going to take 
unfortunately, that kinetic cyber-induced attack for anyone to do anything about it. And that's what we saw with 9-11. You know, that's that's what it took for us to wake up to the terrorist threat and and start rolling out these programs. And then, you know, there are some legitimate questions about whether they went too far. But, you know, let's not do that with cyber. Let's let's look at where we are now. It's not that hard to see where we are headed. Um, so we really need to come up with solutions. But again, the solutions here are not easy. I don't have all the answers, even after writing this book. <laughs> I just have some idea that the problem is really bad. I have some thoughts on it. And I think it's time that we have uh, much more regular discussions about this as the American public so we can come up with some solutions. And unfortunately, they're going to have to be market-based solutions because we have no appetite for some of this coming down in the form of regulation. So we have to talk about you know, changing the incentive structures. And I agree with you that that is not easy. Nicole, thank you very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperations with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.